want you to turn to Revelation chapter 17. And uh, <clears throat> while you are turning there, um, I would like to maybe just kind of informally uh, do a little poll as to uh, what your thoughts are, not your thoughts, but um, is, is who's, who's winning the war in Ukraine? Do y'all know? Well, if you're, if you're listening to Western mainstream media, you would think that Ukraine is, is winning that. Uh, but our Western media is not being truthful. And if you, or if you are on Telegram and you follow a man by the name of Amir Sarfati, um, he is putting up things there that's uncensored, and Russia is making great strides to conquer Ukraine. And yet our Western media is not telling us what's taking place. And, and to start with, I was somewhat paying attention to our, our Western media, uh, but I know what the Bible says. I know what Ezekiel 38 and 39 has to say, and it, it, it points in that direction that Ukraine will be overtaken by Russia and, and that that's going to play a major role in the end times. And, uh, and so when you start getting the other side of the story, uh, it's very clear that that is not. Uh, and so just, just know this, Scripture and the Bible has this thing all unfolding and it's moving in the direction that the Lord had intended. And so I, I thought I would just kind of mention that uh, here to you tonight uh, because we are in a, in a state, in an age where there is a lot of, um, I don't know, they say disinformation. I used to think it was misinformation. Uh, but there's a lot of parts there where that the media and, um, you know, just that very much controls our minds and very much controls our thinking. And uh, we need the wisdom and the discernment of the Spirit uh, to be able to be aware of what's taking place. So if you're, if you're wondering about what's going on with that, seek out other media uh, sources. Uh, the Jerusalem Post, jpost.com, uh, is a good place to kind of pick up on uh, what's taking place. And that's a little bit uh, more trustworthy as far as world news uh, goes. Revelation chapter 17, and I want to read uh, this entire chapter. It's a very uh, chapter, I suppose, of curiosity. Uh, all of the book of Revelation is, is, I shouldn't say curiosity, it's probably not a good word to use. Uh, but I think there's a lot of interest in the book of Revelation. But when you come to Revelation 17, this is one of those areas where there's kind of a heightened interest interest in what's taking place here because there's a character uh, that is uh, becomes evident and there's a lot of thoughts and ideas about who that is and I, I'm going to uh, dig around a little bit around the roots tonight and, uh, and we'll, we'll explore some of those things. But Revelation chapter 17 
beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, And there came one of the seven angels, which had seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. And so he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her head was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. The angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and ten horns. The beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. And there are seven kings, five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And the beast was and is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but received power as kings one hour with the beast. And these have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the lamb, and the lamb shall overcome them, for he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. And they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the whore sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore and shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and to give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Um, And so we are going to look. Revelation chapter 17 speaks of uh, Babylon as this this woman. Uh, She's somewhat shrouded in mystery, although if you are familiar with any kind of world history at all, Uh, then verse 9 should have keyed you in 
to and here is the mind which hath wisdom the seven heads or seven mountains on which the woman sitteth there are seven mountains or large hills that are located around Rome uh, in Italy and this will be the revived Roman Empire and this woman that we read about here in verse in chapter 17 will compare it to Revelation chapter 12 here and just uh, as, as the Bible study unfolds here uh, tonight but when you start looking uh, at this it starts becoming clear who this woman is what she's about how she's going to operate and is going to work in tandem with the Antichrist and the false prophet will come out uh, and play a prominent role we'll get to that here uh, before the month is over with and uh, we'll kind of explore that and then next week we're going to actually look at the city of Babylon and uh, what takes place with that and uh, how quickly, it, I mean it's been in power since Genesis 11, uh, the Tower of Babel, Nimrod, we'll get into some of that here in just a few minutes but that city that has been present uh, basically since uh, 2400 B.C., uh, which was about 700 years after the flood uh, that came along. And in the process, we'll see how all of that unfolds and uh, works out. Now, I've got some additional uh, notes here. I'm not going to go into the Genesis 3 part uh, where the fall of man, I have uh, been through that a number of times in the past, but I just wanted to put that in there so that for my sake if I got hunting around later on I could pull this out but let's do talk about uh, this matter of religion and you don't need a relationship with religion you need a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ now what is religion really about religion is a way where that man determines uh, that he's going to make his own way to God and what does that look like well I want you to turn back in your Bible just real quickly and let's look at Isaiah chapter 53 which is a picture of the Savior, our suffering Savior. Uh, it, is, it is one of what is called one of the servant songs uh, that is in the book of Isaiah. But look in Isaiah chapter 53 and look at verse 6. This is a classic picture of what uh, it looks like whenever man chooses religion because it says all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all but you see that phrase there the two first we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned everyone to his own way that means that there's a pursuit that they're, that's what religion does to you. Religion says, I'm going to choose my own way. And a lot of times it has to do with what grandma's religion looked like. And, um, and most grandmothers are as sweet um, as sugar. And so it's like, well, my grandma, she was this or that, the other. And, and um, I know my grandchildren, my wife, is, they're brainwashed when it comes to my wife. And um, they don't, I told them that, em, that Emmy was going to be mine. And I'm just telling you, she is, she's falling under the sway of my wife. And so most of us think that our grandmothers 
were the sweetest, kindest souls that ever lived. And so a lot of times that affects the impact that people have uh, toward religion. And so we, we kind of, well, Grandma and Grandpa was such and so, and, and I'm sure they're there. But what if by chance they're not there? And we don't like to entertain that thought. But religion will move you into a place where that, that's the sort of thinking that you have is man making his own way to God. Religion is whenever things are more important than God. Uh, religion is when man tries to use his own accomplishments and contributions to gain favor with God. Classic example is the rich young ruler that came to the Lord and said, what do I have to do to be saved? And you remember what the Lord told him? Keep all the points of the law. He said, I've done this from my youth up. I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm well-mannered. My fingernails are cut, and there's no grease or grime under them. And I brushed my teeth this morning, and I've combed my hair. And the Lord said, okay, good. Then take everything that you have and sell it and give to the poor and whenever that man determined that he could not live up to that because he was trying to make his way in uh, by his own accomplishments and contributions to gain favor with God, the Bible says that he walked away and he was sorrowful of heart. So religion can do those things with you. Re religion is when man is more preoccupied with creation than the creator. What does that look like? That looks like that whenever we get in contact with things that are materialistic in mind and in view that we pursue that more than what we do our relationship uh, with God. Now, there's a timeline that progresses throughout Scripture that you begin to see how all this thing particularly unfolds. It started with the devil in Genesis chapter 3 where that he, he stumped up uh, Adam and Eve, and they fell in the garden. And then it progresses on. And if you wonder who that serpent was in the garden, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9 tells us uh, who that serpent was. And so the devil's first convert, uh, I guess you would say, was Cain. You remember Cain, he decides that what he's going to do is he's going to make his own offering and he's going he's gonna to work You know what he's grown uh, he's not going to have the same offering that Abel has, which was a, a blood sacrifice. And so he brings his uh, things to the, to, the, to the Lord, and they're unacceptable. And he ends up killing his brother uh, because his sacrifice was not uh, approved by God. That is because when a man-centered religion focuses in on a certain thing, that it is always going to fall short because the only thing that can save us is the Lord Jesus Christ. It then progresses several hundred years. You get to Genesis chapter 11. And whenever you get to Genesis chapter 11, that's the first movement that I guess you could see that goes toward what we would consider a global religion. What did that look like? You remember they built a tower. There was a man by the name of Nimrod who sort of engineered that. And uh, uh, again, he decided what he was going to do. He was leading the charge to say, you know what? I can get to heaven 
uh, by my own works, by my own what I'm building, putting together, etc. Because that's what the scripture says. We're, let us make a tower that's going to go to where it's going to go to go to heaven. And so then you fast forward a little bit, and you get to a man by the name of Balaam in Numbers chapter 22. Uh, through 25, I, I'm just telling there are probably 10 or 15 sermons that are in those three chapters, 22, 23, 25, four chapters, uh, there where that Balaam uh, leads the movement to infect God's people with idolatry. That plays out. You continue to see Balaam and his influence showing up. Uh, you see it show up in the book of Jude. You also see it, this is known as the error of Balaam. Uh, there in Jude, you see it showing up again uh, in Revelation, and it gets infected and works its way into uh, the church there at Pergamos. And we'll get to that a little bit uh, later on. Pergamos uh, was the church that mixed the error of Balaam, and what takes place, it has ties to Roman Catholicism. And um, I will tell you, if you on the last page of the notes there, I try to put the sources of where I've got a lot of this uh, information. And uh, there's a couple of books. One of them's been around for a long time. Uh, somewhat mixed reviews. Some people are extremely critical of it. Some people are extremely, they love it, think it's the greatest thing in the world. Um, but as a kid, I can remember Brother Patterson having a copy. Then I remember Brother Pounder's uh, having some mention of it. And then when I got to Bible college, uh, Brother Griffin mentioned it, and it's called The Two Babylons by a man by the name of Alexander Hislop. And then there's another, and this guy is controversial as well. His name is Dave Hunt, and uh, he's got a book called A Woman Rides the Beast. And when you start reading these books and it opens up Scripture in a way that you begin, you can point and say that you, you can't, you can't get any, any more clear than that. And then in Revelation chapter 7, we read about an apostate church and a global religion, and it culminates, and it will have a global influence before everything is all said and done. Now, I did put that picture there in uh, the notes there. How many of you, you have ever seen that? Maybe on a bumper sticker, you've seen that where it says that coexist? Y'all seen that? Has anybody ever explained it to you? Uh, what it is, is it is a symbol that what it does, it tries to fit all religions and persuasions into uh, man's thinking. And so you see there the, the C, uh, that's the symbol for Islam. Then you got the peace symbol there for world peace. Uh, then you got the male and the female uh, part. Then you got the Star of David. And then that eye with the pentagram up above it is pagan or Wiccan. And then you've got the yin yang, which is the uh, Chinese Eastern mysticism uh, that's going. And then you've got the cross there at the end, uh, which, is contra which is Christianity. And basically what the devil is trying to do is to put it all together so that we can say, well, it doesn't matter which road that you take, there are people that's going to use Islam. They're going to be okay. Uh, there's going to be people that look for world peace. They're going to be okay. There's going to be people that are feminist and 
etc. and LGBTQ and they're going to be okay with that. The Judaism, Star of David, they're going to be okay. All the Satanists and the Wiccans and the pagans are going to be okay and all of the Eastern mysticism folks are going to be okay and all of Christianity is going to be okay and we ultimately are going to end up all at the happy hunting ground. Except there's a problem with that. And that problem is this is that Jesus very clearly articulated, in, especially in the Gospel of John, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And he is the only way of salvation. Now, here's what happens. People who you explain that to or say that to, then they say you're intolerant uh, or they use that, that B word, you're a bigot. You're, you're, you're prejudiced you're, and nobody wants to be intolerant and nobody wants to be um, a, called a religious bigot. Nobody likes that. And yet we're moving in a direction where there are some challenging days, I believe, that are in front of the church uh, before we are taken out of here in the rapture. And you've got to make sure that you get locked into this thing and I know that, that this is fresh with, with some of you recently that you have lost loved ones, uh, that they were in the church and they were stable and faithful saints of God. I'm just telling you now, they're the ones that are blessed because I believe there's pressure that's going to come to us that some of us are sitting here in this room tonight that pressure is on its way and we've got to make sure that our lives are locked in to a spiritual relationship with the Lord. Now, I'm just going to throw this out here. Maybe I ought to close my eyes when I say this, but just, just, I'm just going to say this, okay? If, if, if they are haphazard in their attendance to church, uh, if they are fair-weather Christians, uh, if they are inconsistent with their giving, or if they get upset because somebody offends them, I'm just telling you now, they will not withstand the pressure that's coming to the church. They, they just won't. People that's on the fringe, they're, they're going to even get more on the fringe. That's why your relationship with the Lord, you have got to become committed like you never have before. And so I would just, just say that. Now, Paul speaks to that matter. And, and if you have your Bibles, I've got it there for you. But uh, if you, you want to turn back, turn there to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and look at what uh, Paul is speaking of. He's, he's talking about this matter of, of tolerance and, and so on and so forth. But look at what he says there in 2 Corinthians. Uh, Corinthians chapter 11 and look in verse 2. The Bible says there, for I am jealous over you with godly jealousy for I have espoused to you or I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Now I'm going to throw something out here. You, you hear preachers not nearly as much as they should and I don't do it as nearly as I, often as I should preaching against worldliness and separation. And I would just say that whenever I see this description here where that, that Paul writes, says that that, that that 
that you are a chaste virgin to Christ. There's a reason that he uses that word chaste in front of virgin. And that is because chastity has to do with the state of mind. And there is a place where you can be physically pure, but mentally and spiritually you can be unchaste and impure. And keep that in mind whenever Paul puts that there, that he didn't just decide, well, I'm just going to use this, this adjective to describe virgin. He's talking about the matter that, that the church is going to be spotless, it's going to be separated, it's not going to be marked by the world. But here's what his fears is in verse 3. He said, but I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be, should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit which, is not, which ye have not received, or another gospel which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. Okay, but look at verse 3. You remember I mentioned to you all ago about how that uh, the global plan was started a long time ago. Where did, this, did it start? Verse 3 speaks to that where it talks about the serpent uh, beguiled Eve uh, through his subtlety. And so what we have to make sure is that our minds do not become corrupted by the actions and activities of this world. And, and I'm just going to, I have talked to multiple preachers in the last uh, two weeks, and I have just implored, and I'm imploring myself as well, if you're aware, if you're even halfway watching, paying attention to some of the things that are going on in the news, the things that are going on with morality in places of spiritual leadership and places that men that are in powerful positions of spiritual leadership, that they have allowed themselves to become morally compromised and some of them, uh, one video on Facebook, Confession in a Church, that took place, it was well over 100,000 views in less, a little over the 24 hours. There was a confrontation that took place in that. And I watched that, and it was grieving to me to see that that is taking place in Christianity. And one minister uh, mentioned to me, it's almost like Christianity in, in the America is imploding. And we've got to get our guards up. And um, I sort of tongue-in-cheek thought, maybe I need to come in here and, and confess to y'all. And, and here's what I'm going to confess to y'all, is I'm sorry I hadn't preached longer sermons to y'all. I'm sorry that I didn't take your arm and bend it behind your back and get you in the altar and, and start taking roll and tell you, you better be at church. That, that's, that's my confession to you that I... Because I'm just telling you now, church, this thing is, this is life and death. It's not, just a, it's not just something that we do. This matter, what we're doing right now is eternal in its, in its, in its, in its relationship. And none of us 
are beyond a place of being deceived. And uh, when I was a kid, my, my parents took me to, we went to Disney World, of course it was drastically different then than what it is now. However, we they had this deal called Monsanto. It was a 360 deal around and you go in there and you stand in there and you hold on to the to the to the rail, and uh, they take you all over these places in America. It's back whenever America was kind of patriotic, this was in the seventies, and uh, much has changed in America since then. But but what happens is you get in there and you're standing there, you're holding that rail, and the next thing you know, you're you're swaying and you're moving. And why is that? Is because that screen is deceiving your mind. And it's making you think that even though you're standing in a place that is stationary, it feels like you're moving. That's the way deception works. Is deception can get into your spirit. And that's what Paul was saying. Paul was saying, I fear you Corinthians. Now think about who the Corinthian church was. They were a church that had the nine spiritual gifts that were in high gear. I mean, you talk about worship that had passion in it. You talk about the power and the strength of God. The Corinthian church was a Pentecostal church. And yet Paul is saying, uh, I fear that even though you're in this high-octane environment where the gifts of the Spirit are operating, that the enemy can come in and he can deceive you. And you can get to a place where that, that your mind is addled, spiritually speaking. And if it can happen to the church at Corinth, it can happen to this church here in Dothan. And we've got to have spirit working. John 4, 24, true worshipers worship how? Spirit and truth. And we can't discount the word of God and say, well, you know, we, we'd rather have the spirit move than the work. We have to have them mixed together because at the end of the day, you can preach the gospel to yourself. And when I say preach the gospel to yourself, I'm not just talking about just a basic salvation message. I'm talking about preaching the gospel to yourself to say, I need to be separated from this world. I need to pray without ceasing. I need to give thanks in everything, which sometimes can be, uh, be challenging. So, so we get to this place, and I'm not gonna read Revelation 17. I've got it there for you. Uh, but it introduces us to, as John says, this is the great whore of Babylon. That is the part of mystery Babylon. Now, how does all that take place? Well, all the false religions that the devil has promoted, here's what is very odd, is that there's always a mother-son in false pagan religions, and here's the way it works. There is a mother goddess, in each one of these mystery religions and she has a son and generally that son will be killed by a wild animal and then he will stay dead for 40 days and then he will be resurrected back to life 
And if you look at the practice of Lent, which is a 40-day period, it has its roots in pagan religion. Now, what does that look like? Well, I've got a chart there for you, Mystery Babylon. Um, what does that look like? Well, the mother in Babel, Semiramis was the mother, the son was Tamus. In Syria, the mother was Ishtar, the son was Tamus. In Phoenicia, it was Astarte or Ashtaroth, and the son was Baal. In Egypt, it was Isis, and the son was Osiris. In uh, Greece, the mother was Aphrodite, and the son was Eros. And then in Rome, the mother was Venus, and the son was Cupid. Now, you start looking at the way that those have woven themselves into pagan religion. It's easy to see how that it's worked its way into the world. Now, let's take a look and let's make some comparisons. This is one of the parts about just anytime you do personal Bible study, if there's a place where you can find a comparison, and one of those things that, that you ought to do, just sit down at some point, is look at the woman in Proverbs 7 and do a Bible, just sit down and just write down the characteristics of the woman there in Proverbs 7, y'all remember that's the one where that Solomon looks out and he says he was looking out his casement, it's King James, I was looking out my window and I beheld one of the simple ones. Now the King James, my grandchildren are not in here, especially Reagan would get on me about this and say this is a bad word. Uh, and it may be a bad word, but anyways, uh, whenever... Whenever Solomon writes that, he said, I was standing in my casement, I was standing in my window, and I looked out and I saw one of the simple ones. He saw a young man. He said he was void of understanding. Okay, So what he sees is he sees a young man who is stupid. And he's going to get involved with a woman. Look at the characteristics of that woman. And then make a care, then make a comparative study and go to Proverbs chapter thirty-one. Y'all know what Proverbs thirty-one is. Proverbs thirty-one woman is a very stable, godly woman. So when you make a comparison between Proverbs seven and Proverbs thirty-one, that's quite a Bible study. Not only do I believe that it shows the difference between someone that's chaste and godly versus somebody that's immoral and worldly, I also believe that it is a picture of a, of a church that has become worldly and has become gone to man-centered religion versus what a church looks like that is gifted and godly and clean and so forth. So when you're doing various Bible studies, you make comparisons. Another Example is to take Doeg the Edomite, Old Testament character. Look at the characteristics that he presents. He remember he's a guy that that told on David, and then they went down to Nob and they killed all the priests there. There's a New Testament correspondent to him whose name is Judas. And if you look at Doeg the Edomite, and then you compare Judas Iscariot, who was of a place called Kirioth then there is an incredible Bible study that you start looking at and you say, oh, man, you're so, you're so, you overdo it, you're so over, am I really? This right here, you remember? This Bible 
is the words of life. This Bible is eternal. And it's our job, scriptural, the scriptures tell us that success, Joshua 1 and 8, comes to the man or woman that spends time in the Word of God. I don't think we can take the Bible too seriously. I will confess this to you. One of my chief regrets when I stand before the Lord is I'm going to have to tell the Lord, Lord, I'm sorry I didn't spend more time in your Word. That's, that's, I'm not saying that for you, but I'm, I'm going to have to say that for me. So, Lord, I, I, didn't, I wish I would have spent more time with your Word. And um, so I'll throw that out there. Okay, so let's make a comparison. Let's remember in Revelation chapter 12, there was a woman that was there. And what was that woman? You remember? She is... Anybody remember? Israel. That's right. And there is a son that is born. It's a man child. It's clothed with a son. Identity, sun, moon, and stars. Its enemy is the dragon. It's hated by the world. It's a picture of Mary or Israel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you make a comparison of Revelation chapter 12 with this woman that's riding the beast in Revelation chapter 17, let's make some comparisons. Where does she come from? Upon many waters. And do you remember when you look at the biblical term and it talks about many waters? What is that generally speaking of? That generally is speaking of Gentile nations or a large body of people. Because you remember one of the kingdom parables in Matthew 13 was the dragnet where they dropped the net down and they pulled up all the fish and then they started separating them out. And basically what that was talking about was was that the gospel net's going to be dipped down into the nations and there will be a separation that takes place between that. So she's upon many waters, so there's a representation there that there's a huge world influence that she has. She's not the mother of a man-child, but she's the mother of harlots. And instead of being clothed with the sun, she's clothed with purple, scarlet, and gold. Her identity uh, she reigns over the kings of the earth. The enemy ultimately is going to be the ten kings. What's her relationship with the world? The world loves her. The world is very much caught up with her. What's her relationship with the real church? She hates them and she's drunk with the blood of the martyrs. And so you start looking at that matter. So in Revelation 17, what we see is we see a woman uh, that is very much, uh, she comes after the true apostolic church. Now, here's, here's where we're going to get a little dicey between now, to get kind of bumpy between now and the end. Uh, so put your tray tables up, put your seat forward, and put your seat belt on. Um, so how does that work? Well, if we're going to be saved, it's going to be because of something called substitutionary atonement or I can put a, another word in there called penal substitution, which means that there's going to be somebody that's going to die 
in my stead for the sins that I have committed. It's gonna, it's gonna be somebody that's gonna take, it's gonna be like a scapegoat. I need to pull that sermon out and re-preach that from years ago. Um, but somebody is gonna be in my stead that is gonna die for my sins. Now, who was that? It was the Lord Jesus Christ. That he died for my salvation. He died so that I could experience and I could have eternal life. But in Genesis chapter 11, and I won't read that for the sake of time, but you've got those scriptures there in uh, those notes. Uh, but there in Genesis chapter 11, they build this tower up to try to get to heaven in case ever again there's another flood that takes place and that then they'll be able to be to be saved. Now it's interesting the observation, I'll just kind of bump this and then we'll move on, but it's interesting that God looks at that and he says if I don't go down there and do something about it, they're, they're going to achieve their goal. And so the Bible tells us that he confounded their languages and all of a sudden they couldn't understand each other while they were trying to build that Tower of Babel. So they ended up scattering and they broke up pretty much by language groups um, and they had to go into various places and, and of course that was stopped. Now in the Tower of Babel, the chief constructor, constructor was a man by the name of Nimrod. Now, this is where paganism in Romanism or the Roman Catholic Church takes place in the plain of Shinar, which is a modern-day Babylon. Now, here's what history tells us, that Nimrod was married to a woman whose name was Semiramis, and she had a son by the name of Tammuz, and if you remember, whenever the glory begins to depart, out of the temple there in Jerusalem in Ezekiel chapter 8, 9, 10, 11, and I think 12 as well. You remember whenever he goes in, remember he told him to put a hole in the wall and look in through the wall. You remember what he saw? He saw a variety of worship. He saw worship that the Egyptians, the sun god, he, but he also talked about that there were women there and they were weeping do you remember why they were weeping? Temus. They were weeping for this Babylonian religion that had been hundreds of years prior to that. Now, Jeremiah comes along, and in Jeremiah chapter 44 and verse 17, he says, But we will certainly do whatsoever thing goeth forth out of our own mouth to burn incense unto the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings unto her as we have done we and our fathers, our kings and our princes in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem for then had we plenty of victuals, and we were well and sought no evil but since we left off to burn incense to the queen of heaven, Semiramis and to pour out drink offerings unto her we have waited all things and have been consumed by the sword and by the famine. And when we burned incense to the queen of heaven, Semiramis, and poured out drink offerings unto her, did we make cakes to worship her and pour out drink offerings unto her without our men? 
And so the queen of heaven is Semiramis's idolatrous religion of Tammuz, of Lent, and of Romanism. It was practiced until the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. there by Titus whenever he comes into Jerusalem and begins to destroy that. Now, turn over turn to Revelation chapter 2, and this is where that John sees these pictures of these churches. But look there in verse 12. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12, the Bible says there, and to, unto the and to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr. Antipas was a pastor there who got killed because he was faithful to the gospel. He was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. And so hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. That's another thing you ought to do, personal Bible study. Just look at the things God hates. And repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches to him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna and will I and will give him a white stone and in a stone a new name written which no man knoweth saving he that receiveth it now here's what happened Balaam comes in and Balaam mixes in the worship of Babylon which originated in Genesis 11 and it wove its way into the church. And you think, how in the world did that exist for all of those thousands of years? Well, what happened was, was the priest of Semiramis and Tammuz, whenever Julius Caesar was in, uh, now Julius Caesar was prior to the time of the Lord. He was the first uh, one that tried to become the emperor uh, there in, in Rome. And so what he did was he, and he's already trying to move in that direction. He didn't end up being the Caesar. He next guy that followed him, I think it was his son. Remember, he died, Brutus and all the boys got to him. And, uh, but anyway, uh, Julius Caesar had some priests of Semiramis and Tammuz and he kind of scattered them about the Roman Empire. And they got to, and they landed there in Pergamos and began to set up their idols, and their idols worked their way into the church. Be careful, and I need to be careful, how, how much that we let this world influence and affect us. Because if we let the world influence and affect us in a way, it's going to affect our church, it's going to affect your family, and ultimately anything that tries to pull us away from the Lord 
I would say is ungodly. I would even go as far to say as demonic. Anything that tries to move me away from is, is, is not good for me. And so the Lord spoke to John and he said this is how false paganism had influenced the church at the time and he condemned it. And then Constantine came in around 313 A.D. and legalized Christianity. And here's what he did. As his, as his empire began to expand, he began to realize what we got to do is we got to incorporate these pagan beliefs and views. He said, I can't tear down all these, these churches. He said, I get to tear down these churches. He said, these, these people are going to be an uprising. So what did he do? He mixed in all the pagan worship with those churches that had been established. And then next thing you know, Rome... This was the beginning of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, they used the wafers or the host. Where does that come from? Semiramis. Because in Jeremiah chapter 44, you start seeing what, what do they do? They make cakes and begin to worship her. Next thing you begin to see is that Semiramis and her influence is very much affected into what we call Mariolatry and the elevation of Mary. Mary mother of God and so as that progresses on what does world history look like well in 593 AD purgatory begins to get a foothold Gregory I became the first real pope Peter was not the first pope and I would even say I, I say sometimes that Gregory was not the first pope I say Constantine was the first pope because Constantine was actually the one that started getting it on track and moving it. But in 593 A.D., Gregory I became the first real pope. And then in 754, uh, temporal power came in where the, the rule of the church in earthly possessions and the authority of the pope in civil territories where that the church ruled. And then uh, in 1075, they had the greatest divorce in history whenever they said that the clergy had to, be, had to divorce their wives and from that point on, under Gregory VII, uh, they forced all the priests into celibacy, which has created massive problems for the Catholic Church. And uh, so, and Paul speaks to that matter where it talks about forbidding marriage, forbidding meats, forbidding those sorts of things. So he, Paul actually said, when Paul, we don't sometimes equate Paul as a prophet, but Paul begins to write and say that these things, there's going to be men that's going to come along and say, you can't eat meat. I'm just telling you now, I'm going to be, I'm going to be sunk if they cut out meat. Yet the World Economic Forum right now is trying to say we got to get rid of all the cows, we got to save the planet, et cetera, and so forth. And then Brother, Brother Batterson says forbidding to marry. And so Paul saw that as it moved forward. 1184, the Inquisition starts. 1190, uh, the sale of indulgences began. If you're not aware, familiar what the indulgences were, uh, they let you sin on credit that you could come pay preacher off Pope off, priest off, pay him off, and then you could go out and paint the town red and everything would be okay because you already had credit to your account uh, for that. And, um, and so, and then 
1214 A.D. is whenever the transubstantiation dogma really started playing in where that uh, they believed that the host or the wafer that we offer for communion actually becomes the literal body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet that's not what Scripture says. You remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? It's memory. It's remembrance. That's what Jesus said at the Last Supper, that, that we're not believing that every time we take communion that we're crucifying the Lord all over again. And um, it's, uh, I'm pushing time, but we'll try to hurry up and get through this, okay? The plan of the devil is to get people away from the Bible. Therefore, it's crucial that we are Berean saints and we search out the Scriptures. Remember what the Bible says, that these were more noble than they were they at it. Berea, what did they do? They searched out the Scriptures to see if that was true, what was being said. So when you look at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 25, 26, nor yet that he should offer himself often as a high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others, for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by sacrifice of himself on the cross Jesus died once and that is not to be repeated at all and the Roman Catholic Church focuses in on the mass that elevates the host lifts it toward heaven says this becomes the body of Christ and is crucified again and that's paganism now, let's quickly move through these. The following reasons are an explanation as to why this is biblically incorrect way of worship. Mass, it crucifies the Lord again and again. Mary attributes to her the attributes of God. She's not omnipotent. She's not omniscient. She's not omnipresent. Tradition, what does tradition look like? Elevation of tradition over scriptures. What kind of tradition? Purgatory, mass, indulgences, the infallibility of the Pope, transubstantiation. Do you know that what the writings of the Pope, uh, that they believe that that is only equivalent and equal with the scripture? That's not true. God has a canon that was preserved. And those men that wrote the New Testament canon were either apostles or they were people that had seen the Lord Jesus Christ. There's images, uh, dashboard images, necklaces of patron saints that are prayed to and inquired of for spiritual guidance. Uh, that's very scary because if you start saying, well, I'm going to pray to saint so-and-so, I believe that as you pray to that saint that what you're doing is you're opening yourself up to demons. Now, people don't equate it like that, and they probably wouldn't say, probably would say it a little more diplomatically than what I've said. Uh, but I believe that, again, uh, that, that whenever you open yourself up and begin to pray to patron saints, it's demonic. The sacraments, such as infant baptism, confirmation, confessions, penance, holy orders, extreme unction, these are treat, treated as steps to heaven. And then you get to the place of purgatory. Jesus didn't do enough for our salvation. So if you want to be saved, whenever you pass on, your family has got to pay money to get you out of from being burned so you can be purified so that you can, when they finally pay you out, that you can get up to heaven 
and get there. And then paganism uh, is woven through it, the lint, the robes, the vestments, the beads, the candles, even the headdress that the Pope wears all have uh, their roots in paganism. And yet, Jesus was very clear. There's two ways. One way is broad. It's wide. What does it do? It leads to destruction. But there's a narrow way. And we got to find that narrow way. Amen. I want us to stand tonight. And uh, I went a minute over, so I had to cut off a minute. Clay's Sunday, y'all had to cut me down a minute early. Amen. Appreciate you being here tonight. I pray that something that has stimulated your mind, and just know this, we must be saved. We can't afford to be deceived. And I want my mind to be discerning. I want my mind to be filled with the Word of God so that the Lord can bring us to that final place. Let's thank the Lord for his word. Lord, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful, Lord, that, God, that you are working, Lord, toward our salvation. I'm thankful, Lord, for the cross. And I ask you, Lord, tonight that that, Lord, crimson stream of blood that we sang about, that, God, that it would wash us, that it would cleanse us, the Lord, that, that it would ever be before us and help us, God, to be preserved, Lord, from the, Lord, the beguiling work of the serpent and that, Jesus, that you would help us to save ourselves from this untoward generation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. The Lord bless you. Uh, Saturday night, Friday night power supply, if you're going to youth camp, come to that. Friday, Saturday night, church be open for prayer and invite somebody to church Sunday. Lord bless you.